from Chicago. Welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Probably the best, the best thing that happened in my career actually was getting laid off. Right, so I got laid off of GE Healthcare on the same day as 24,400 or some other number of other people. Um, you know, one of the kind of cullings of the herd uh, days. And, you know, that was a wake up call. You know, I, I, within a few weeks, I had a network and I found something else, someplace else to work. It was working on different high temperature materials and it was pretty interesting. And then I got laid off from that company about 14 months after getting laid off from GE. So and then I was like, okay, screw this, working for somebody else. Um, started my own business. Sound familiar? That's Kirk Rogers. Kirk is a technical excellence leader at the Barnes Global Advisors. For the last 10 years, Kirk has used additive technologies to solve manufacturing, repair, and supply chain problems. He recently was the technical leader on the startup of a $40 million added manufacturing R&D center, culminating in a ne- nearly 20-year career at GE. Most of Kirk's career has been in the medical device manufacturing realm, where he built manufacturing lines for qualified and qualified numerous products. Kirk has 25 years of experience in materials processing and business strategy. He obtained his BS in materials engineering from Case Western Reserve University, PhD in material science and engineering from Purdue. He completed his postdoc work at The Ohio State University and is cert- certified Six Sigma Black Belt. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Kirk, thank you for joining the show today. Excited for the conversation today. Um, let's start kind of from the beginning. Uh, tell me about a young, young Kirk Rogers, <laughs> kind of what, what were you doing, what were, uh, how you were getting in trouble, and, and how did you kind of get on the path towards engineering, manufacturing? Yeah. How early do you want to go? <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I say I was pre-programmed from a young age. My uh, grandfather got his PhD from University of Cincinnati. And, you know, from as long as I can remember, he was always pushing engineering and he really, really wanted me to do a co-op program, um, which I didn't. But uh, I, and I was resistant to the engineering. I, I mean, really until junior year in high school, uh, you know, Typically got in trouble. I rode my bike places I wasn't supposed to, you know, ran across a multi-lane highway just to see if you could make it before the cars got there, you know, uh, probably did some things I won't mention that required uh, evasion from uh, neighborhood police <laughs> and, uh, you know, rode, rode motorcycles where we weren't supposed to go and, you know, all kinds of interesting things. Um I'd say that probably the, 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 the strange one is uh, one year I had a summer job and uh, I was using a neighbor's lawnmower to cut his lawn and uh, I ran over the cord. And so it was a plug-in electric lawnmower at the time since there was no such thing as battery electric lawnmowers. And um, so, you know, we think this was going to be an epic, fa- epic fail, but he was happy because he hated the lawnmower anyway which is probably why I was mowing his lawn, not because, <laughs> because it made me money. Um, but I took that, uh, that control panel, which had a, uh, a delay fuse in it, and I built a spot welder. I was probably 10, 10 years old at the time. Wow. And were you, are you originally from the Ohio area? Was that? Where no, you I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Okay. 
So I moved to Ohio to come to Case to go to engineering school. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, that's that's where my love of Cleveland started. <laughs> so anyway, it's, a, it's a small city and I'm like, it, not unlike Chicago, we're just with, you know, nearly as much stuff to do and half the hassle. So of living in Chicago. So it's, yeah, it was where I've spent most of my adult life. But so you asked me really where, where, where did we come into, you know, engineering? And I'll say that really what got me into engineering was an article in bicycling magazine in probably summer of 1986, maybe 1985. It was about the materials used to build bike frames and components and stuff. And so at the time, most everything was made out of steel uh, or aluminum and you had uh, composite bikes starting to come out. You had uh, different kinds of aluminum frames. Some were welded, some were bonded, you know, lugs bonded to tubes of different chemistries or different alumina alloys, um, you know, and there's some other unique things that don't exist anymore. Uh, and that's really kind of what sparked the, the material scientist in me. And that's kind of sent me on this path now that I've been on 35 years in love of materials. That's awesome. It's very similar to kind of where, where I, I found materials was for baseball bats. You have the same progression yeah. as bikes, right? Like aluminum, a exactly. little bit of titanium, um, but kind of composites and, and that tangible feel of like, Hey, like this, when you switch materials, it actually makes a difference and <laughs> you can see, yes. see it and feel it for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time I had an aluminum frame bike and a steel framed bike, you know, and they were completely different. One of them, one of them weighed half as much as the other. Uh, I'll let the, re the, the viewer guess uh, uh, which one weighed less than the other. Um, so. And, and so with materials, was that uh, like for me, like when, when I didn't know what materials engineering was going into kind of college was that something on your radar like that sort of, sort of program or we had you like you had the yeah. article but you kind of knew what it yeah, was the, the article didn't really necessarily mention material science as a degree that i remember but uh i did go and see my college counselor that fall and i was like hey what's this you know and, and he's like well i think there's this field called material science you know there's a few schools that have degrees in that maybe you should do there and then you know did a little investigating and decided that um, I'd be going to Lehigh, Virginia Tech, or uh, where else did I go? I had like three or four schools. And then I got random mailers from this small school in Cleveland, Ohio, called Case Western Reserve University. Who, who ever heard of that place, right? As a high schooler, you know, big name schools. And um, yeah, lo and behold, I visited Case and fell in love and you know, spent four years there. So kind of growing as an engineer and growing as a, as a human in a uniquely right next to downtown, um, you know, very, very academic environment, which is cool. And so what sort of projects or were you doing internships or kind of, were you, had you, did you kind of find a focus of like what aspect of material science that you liked or you were kind of drawn to? No, I'll say I, I singularly lacked focus. Um, you know, uh, undergraduate project I did on bone, so on human bone. And uh, I remember the I wrote a thing called the uh, article called the on the stress generated potential in wet bone. 
right? Because uh, hydroxyapatite, the, the mineral component of bone is piezoelectric. And mm -hmm. it's essentially a small electric currents, which osteocytes respond to. That is the stress that we put on our bones through daily activities um, and to make more bone and get, make stronger bones. And so that was really interesting in the time. And then, you know, the next summer I worked at a steel mill. It was just very, 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 very different, right? Well, I, I should I say steel mill, but I really worked in a technology center like 20 miles away from a steel mill uh, and occasionally got to drive down into the mill to pick up samples and stuff like that. That's kind of the cool part, right? Is like the material science yeah. kind of background gives you this tool uh, toolkit to like see problems from a specific angle, whether they're applied in medical or kind of industrial like steels or whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that really, for me, really helped is being able to think about the same thing on three or four, you know, at least three different size scales. So, you know, what's happening at the atom level, what's happening at the grain level, what's happening at the macro level. Right? And, and that's not something you get from many other fields. For sure. So, so you know, to me, I, that, that's it's still cool. After you know, like I said, thirty-five years, it's it's still cool. But you know that you solve problems, and you know, I get an email from somebody the other day who's having a corrosion problem, and you know, it's like, okay, let's do a little research. And I've asked three times now what the microstructure looks like, and I've gotten zero pictures of grains and microstructure, so I still don't know what the problem is and how to fix it. <laughs> And so as you were kind of pursuing your, your academic career, kind of where did like kind of the industry piece kind of come into it? Did you have kind of companies on, on your radar? What, what were like, was any of that planned out? Was it kind oh, of? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, you know, uh, finished case in the early nineties, the job market wasn't good. Um, you know, we were just exiting recession and uh, really it was easiest to go to graduate school. And so I applied to five or six graduate schools and thankfully got into one because I had no job offers. Um, and that landed me at Purdue, which was, you know, a very different environment, suddenly going from a small private school to a big 10 campus. Um, and, you know, was a, a terrific opportunity. Right? And so at Purdue really was focused on getting a master's degree. I got asked to stay. Uh, after my master's degree, because I was my the first potential PhD student that my advisor had, because he was new, um, so we we're two two young guns kind of figuring our way through the PhD program together, and so I stayed for a PhD and then um, was really on the faculty plan. You know, I was thinking about okay, I'm going to be Professor Kirk, and you know, what's that going to look like? Uh, to the point where you know, somebody I knew more or less wrote me a postdoc job description and offered something even before I'd finished my PhD. And so, you know, I did that. And um, here's where the interesting part comes is that I had a visiting scientist work for me and I had a few other people working for me during my postdoc. And uh, I wrote a recommendation letter to uh, a general electric company for somebody who had worked for me, right? Just like you do. And uh, a couple of days later, I got a phone call from somebody who worked at this company that I used to go to graduate school with a couple of years before saying, Hey, you'd be a better candidate for this job than the guy you just wrote the recommendation letter for, you know, why don't you apply? 
<laughs> and so I did. And I apologized to the guy that I wrote the recommendation letter for. And, you know, a couple months later, uh, started working at GE Healthcare, you know, working refractory metals, which is completely different than steel and is completely different than bone. So what was the appeal for the... The appeal was, you know, another place with very unique technology. So, you know, an opportunity to really dig into breast and center metallurgy and sort of the mission around GE Healthcare at the time was, you know, saving lives. And so both the saving lives, you know, the end product mission and the technical, you know, day-to-day work were both really appealing. So... Um, you know, I spent a number of years there. So talk a little bit about kind of the environment within GE. So GE is a, a massive company. I think every, everyone knows, <laughs> knows the name, but uh, it's got, got different groups and different subdivisions yep. and, and things. So where, where did at the time, because it's, it's all evolved, I'm guessing since, but kind of where did GE Healthcare kind of fit and what was their what sort of products or what kind of like, what was their yeah. mission other than saving lives, obviously, but kind of what, what more did they do in kind of that space or what was kind of your focus kind of sure. close by that? So, so uh, when I joined GE healthcare was uh, listed in the annual report under miscellaneous other industrial businesses. Oh, probably so, $5 billion, right? <laughs> it was, it was like two, but, okay. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, it, it was not a focus of general electric company. Uh, it was really sort of a historical business that they had the technology for and supported. Uh, and then, then a guy named Jeff Immelt became the CEO of healthcare and, you know, made a whole bunch of acquisitions. And then it became one of the big, well-known business units of the, of the general electric corporation. Um, you know, at the time when I started, it was really, really focused on diagnostic imaging. And so, you know, I would say 90% of the product line was using x-rays to look through or, or x-rays or, um, uh, magnetic waves to look at a patient through, you know, x-ray CT and mammography equipment, uh, CT being computed tomography or CAT scan as it used to be known. Uh, and then, you know, the other sort of side of the business that was small and growing was magnetic resonance imaging. And so, you know, the, the MRI product was diagnostic imaging, but the, the process technology to make that product and, you know, the actual bits and pieces inside were very different. And so, you know, I was in the diagnostic imaging side. So, you know, if you think about diagnostic imaging, sounds like fancy stuff, right? It's basically using an x-ray source. So something that makes, you know, light of a certain wavelength that we can't see and an x-ray detector of some sort. And, you know, then looking at the difference in intensity through a patient. And, you know, whether you do that as a static x-ray, like if you broke your wrist uh, playing baseball and, you know, slide into home plate and you whack somebody uh, and, you know, get the 2D x-ray and you see your wrists uh, and it's pretty clear. Or if it's a three-dimensional a uh, series of things that are stitched together in a computer tomography sort of sense. Um, but those devices tend to be very high temperature, some, some of them. Um, uh, an x-ray machine in a typical hospital uh, uses about half of the periodic table in its bits and pieces. And so, you know, the opportunity to work on metals and other materials that you've never even heard of 
um, is, is pretty cool. And then to, you know, to be kind of part of a world-class business was also just fantastic. Right. So not just, you know, healthcare business was small, but one of the really neat things about working for a company like GE early in your career is that there's world experts everywhere. And so if you have a problem, right, the problem isn't, I have to go figure this out, you know, a problem that you can't Google, right? Um, The problem isn't, I can't figure this out. I've got to go to the library. It's more like, oh, I need to call my friend at GE Global Research who can help me find the world expert, you know, elsewhere in the company. And so, you know, it's, it's, problems are two or three phone calls away versus weeks of digging through books, uh, you know, at the time, which is an opportunity to learn a ton of stuff quickly, which was really fun. So in addition to your, you have this like super strong kind of material science, technical background. So during your time at GE, kind of what other skill sets were, were you building at that time? I mean, it's this slightly different kind of organization going from a kind of PhD postdoc and do kind of a big <laughs> company like GE, but kind of what, what sorts of, I don't know, um, uh, challenges, probably the wrong, wrong word, but like what sorts of areas were you growing in, in terms of kind of your career um, and, and kind of experiences mm-hmm. beyond the technical side? Sure. Well, so I ended up um, doing a bit of supplier development out of necessity. So finding and onboarding suppliers, which, you know, at the time really meant going and sitting with your supplier and going through uh, an Excel document that had like 1500 questions in it to fill the supplier checklist out. Um, You know, so uh, did, did a fair amount of traveling and visiting, you know, unique suppliers or suppliers with unique capabilities. Right, so if you're if you're making a medical device that that in order to get manufactured needs to be heated up to 2,000 degrees C, and then whacked in a forging press or something, right? There's only a handful of places in the country or in the world where you can go get that done. And so you know, going and finding suppliers and and developing them from uh, hey, I've got an R&D project to here's a production supplier um, was kind of an interesting diversion. Uh, kind of not material science. The other big thing that that transition that happened when I was at GE was kind of every site at one point had its own quality system. And we transitioned to a worldwide single instance of ISO 13485, so medical device quality system, which was, you know, three, four years of literally 20 hours a week working on quality documents. Yeah, so, you know, I'm very, (laughs) I'll say that it's not my favorite topic, um, but I'm pretty well versed in quality systems. And I, and we, you know, developed through that process, a lot of kind of best practices on thinking about quality, which now, you know, I can't forget, right. They, they, they live on. And when you talk to somebody about a quality system or meeting a set of requirements, you know, having a view of the most practical, easiest way to do it, as well as a view for keeping yourself out of audit risk, right? You know, no, nobody in the quality system world has a TurboTax button that, you know, for $49.95, you can, you can add audit risk to, you know, protection to your quality system. No, right? You know, the audit risk is in how you approach, you know, developing quality and ensuring quality, you know, through processes and systems. Um, 
and you know, just not not providing an auditor's rabbit hole to go down. So when was so those your are first? Very, very different, <laughs> but <laughs> but but also very interesting. Absolutely. So when was your first experience with with additive? Uh, well, I'll say that I, I took a, a, a very difficult task on. Uh, and so uh, x-ray targets or x-ray devices uh, that, that make x-rays inside a diagnostic imaging equipment are uh, discs that are typically made out of uh, a molybdenum alloy TZM, and they have an active surface, which is a tungsten alloy. And so tungsten uh, being a very high atomic number and being a very high temperature material uh, is a perfect for the application where you know, you're putting uh, a few a uh, thousand watts of electrical energy in per square millimeter. All right, so we're talking, you know, four, kilo, four kilowatts per square millimeter or about a thousand times the incident energy on the wall of a nuclear reactor is what the input energy was. And so that, that where the X-rays go, uh, where the X-rays are created, the electron beam hits a sort of a path and it makes a, a wear pattern in that device. And that wear pattern, even though it's just thermal, it's thermal wear, uh, is something that causes a life to be shorter than maybe you'd like it to be. And so my first additive project was trying to plasma deposit tungsten onto tungsten uh, to repair x-ray targets. You know, that was, probably, was 20, 2009, 2010. So in that time, there were, Think about there were very few companies that did metal additive um, and very few companies that made metal powder compared to today. Um, and so it was a particularly interesting challenge. I'll, I'll say that we were, uh, we had limited success. And was the idea you know, to I, bring that in house or like were you looking again on the supplier side to see who could kind of do something? way it would work. Okay. I mean, in this case, either way would work because, you know, the, the quantity of devices is only in the hundreds per week. So, you know, if you find a good supplier that has the capability that, that would, you know, do it as a toll service, that's fine. You know, for IP reasons, for the next generation target, you know, the next generation equipment, maybe we would have brought it in-house. But that's, that's always a sort of game time maker by decision. And around that time too, I mean, GE had a lot of other additive program, or I mean, I'm assuming kind of the timeline there, like they had like the, some of the aerospace stuff was, was certainly kind of moving ahead at, at that yeah, time. It was a couple so, of year, yeah, it was, it was early days where yeah. the, the aviation folks were working with Morris Technologies, right? you know, prior to acquisition, uh, there was a fair amount of research going on at uh, corporate R&D. Uh, you know, we, we did some projects early, early days on, on printing collimators. So trying to print really thin walled structures in tungsten, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's lots of other stuff going on too. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say that I, I bought as a, for, not then, but a, a year or two later, um, I bought the first plastic printer that I know of in the GE healthcare business, uh, basically, because I was working on a, a technology development project. And one of the things we realized that we didn't have a lot of space. We had to put a lot of technology and not a lot of space. And so the only way to do that successfully was to simulate. And so the first thing I bought on that program was a 3D printer. So we could 
make plastic prototypes of the equipment and the people and trash cans and desks and literally simulate how that factory floor was going to work before we built it. So that was kind of my second application was really kind of a more classic prototyping, uh, you know, supporting a lean effort and supporting, you know, uh, going from kind of greenfield R&D to how do I manufacture this device, you know, in real time in Cleveland, Ohio. And so at this time was, was additive kind of a main part of your job description or just like, Hey, because the technology exists, I'm going to have to learn about it. It fits what we're doing. Yeah, it was, it was really a, a means to an end. I, mm-hmm. you know, the real goal for the, for the target repair was to reduce cost, you know, to be able to do, you know, out of warranty repairs and get stuff back into the field cost effectively. Um, and so, you know, same with the 3d printing for you know, building a work cell. Right. It wasn't the job description. It was just the right thing to do for that project at that time. How were you learning? I haven't been a 3D printing evangelist, right? I'm, I, I say that I'm, I'm a user or I'm a problem solver. And, and the, the added manufacturing world came to me because of lots of problems to, be, to, to need you know, being solved. How were you getting that information at the time? I mean, there was, was certainly some some literature out there at the time there were some certainly some suppliers but were you just kind of uh, talking to people in 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 people digging through the thomas register remember i don't know if you remember when the thomas register was green books that you bought a subscription to (laughs) kind of like the i've heard of it it was like the The business yellow pages right yeah the phone book for yellow page for businesses yeah um you know it was a fair amount of going to conferences, right? So, you know, Rapid was in its early days. I'd go to Fabtech and IMTS and kind of walk around. Um, I mean, also across the GE business, we had a lot of people doing things like plasma spray, you know, things like uh, powder-fed DED, as it's called today. But we just knew that they were, you know, using powder, sending it through a nozzle, and they were able to add material back to something, right? It was... Uh, it was, you know, unavailable technology, not necessarily thought of as part of additive manufacturing like it is today. So, I mean, today you, your entire day to day, or I assume, maybe I shouldn't assume <laughs> is, is, I would say is predominantly additive. So when, when yes. did that kind of transition happen for you in your career? Yeah. So I'll say, uh, if I could talk, I mean, it was an issue for some reason, if I could preface that, um, probably the best, the best thing that happened to me in my career actually was getting laid off. Mm-hmm. Right, so I got laid off of GE Healthcare on the same day as 24,400 or some other number of other people. Um, you know, one of the kind of cullings of the herd uh, days. And, you know, that was a wake up call. You know, I, I, within a few weeks, I had a network and I found something else, someplace else to work. It was working on different high temperature materials and it was pretty interesting. And, then I got laid off from that company about 14 months after getting laid off from GE. So and then I was like, okay, screw this working for somebody else. Um, started my own business. Sound familiar? Um, <laughs> and uh, in, in the first maybe six or eight weeks of, of building a book of consulting business, um, I had the opportunity to work with the GE corporate again and build a 3D printing innovation center outside of Pittsburgh. 
And so, you know, building that facility then known as the Center for Additive Technology Advancement or CADA, uh, right, uh, was just an opportunity. So Ed Herderick was kind of a thought leader. Um, you know, Barbara Negroy was our, our champion vice president. Uh, and then Georgette Nelson and I and a few other people, you know, found a business, started, you know, recruiting technologists, started buying equipment, found a location uh, and, you know, worked out of uh, 11 of us worked out of a construction trailer for about 10 months in the early days until the building was built. So, yeah, my, you know, my full time working on additive was really probably 20. It was October 2015 and full time working on additive was actually going across the mud into the construction trailer, uh, stepping out into my car in order to take conference calls because there, you know, it was elbow to elbow people in there. Um, and so, you know, it's really been since 2015. And what was the, the aim of this center? Was it to really be kind of a center for excellence for the entire company around yes. additive technology? Yeah. So, you know, aviation had taken more technologies and made the additive technology center and has seen lots of success, you know, good project programs, you know, good buy-in. Um, and so the corporate wanted to take that and kind of replicate it across all of the business. So this was a no cost to the business kind of open, open arms wide, talk to as many people as you can find really good use cases and help accelerate the business transition to from legacy production to using additive for some, some semblance of production. And so, you know, we, we went on a roadshow, you know, the Ed, Her Ed Herderick roadshow for the most part. Um, you know, we talked to hundreds of GE locations. We visited many, many business installations. And I think, you know, we ended up having six out of the seven ASTM technologies under one roof to bring to bear for, you know, a variety of different business challenges that, you know, and so my team was the, you know, essentially the engineering team. So we did intake of projects. We did evaluation. You know, our first year of operation, we evaluated more than 250 projects for should, should we print it? Could we print it? You know, is it the right thing to do for this business? Uh, and then executed a subset of those. The second year, I think we, we looked at more than 500 projects. So, I mean, literally that's two a day. <laughs> <laughs> to evaluate that got submitted or that we, we heard of and we talked to somebody about. It was, it was nuts the amount of different ideas that got generated uh, across the corporate enterprise. And then we you know, evaluated and, and tried to help as many people as we could. So at this and then time, there was this business, yeah, then there was this business called Additive, right? That suddenly, you know, grew out of nowhere and they decided to buy SLM and RCAM which a certain capital management company drop kicked the SLM opportunity and then got sued. Uh, and so they ended up with concept laser and RCAM. And, um, you know, the, the whole shift changed from corporate innovation to really selling machines. And so uh, I said, bye-bye and joined John on this consulting adventure. And so that time during while you were kind of working on the center of excellence, were you consulting with them or were you, were you back at kind of GE full? No, I was full-time back at okay. GE, adding years to my pension qualifying service and all those good things. Okay. So, yeah. 
and then kind of got out of that and kind of back into the consulting space with John. Um, how did that yeah. kind of all, all in, grow up? In, in, in 2018, um, like everything good, it started with a number of coffees with John. So if you talk to anybody on the TBGA team, uh, pretty much all of the early recruits were somebody that he happened to have coffee with a couple of times or had lunch with a couple of times. And then suddenly we're all working together. Um, but I've known John Barnes for a long time, right? We were roommates at Purdue for oh, a year. I didn't know that. So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. we can go way back. Um, funny he story. Wasn't, he wasn't the one that you took the job from, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that, that would be really, really fun story. No, no. Um, uh, uh, funny story, though, is, you know, I was in GE in this innovation role. I hadn't seen John or one of our other roommates for at least a decade. And um, in, in a 3D printing manufacturing seminar where, you know, GE Global Research brought in 50 world experts, right? John flew in from Australia. My friend, Dave, my friend and fellow cyclist Dave, and, and former roommate, Dave Bucci, which was working for the power business, which I didn't even know at the time. You know, I'm sitting in this room, minding my own business, and I hear a familiar voice from behind, right? And you turn around, I'm like, hey, there's John Barnes, right? And a few minutes later, it's like, oh, hey, Dave Bucci's over I know that guy over there. Dave Bucci's over there. And so, you know, um, the, the, the materials world and the additive world is small, as you know. It was just kind of funny. I mean, literally, there's maybe 250 people in that room, and two of them I hadn't seen in a decade, and were both former roommates. So we've had both John and Laura on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. So we have, a, you know, people can listen to kind of more of kind of what the Barnes group does in terms of consulting, but maybe kind of specifically to you, kind of what sorts of, of projects do you generally get involved in and what sorts of, of things are, are you, are you working on? <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm known as the Kirk of all trades basically because i'm not good at saying no and so uh and uh, and i like to work so you know anything that comes in that's even remotely interesting I'm, I'm game for um so i get a lot of the sort of dregs of the business i'll, I'll call it not not in a bad way right but the, the things that that either require you know finding an expertise or that you know don't fit within anybody else's expertise i'll find a way to get it done um, and so, you know, things like ISO 13485 come in handy, right? So, you know, well, a couple of years ago, we spent a good chunk of time, uh, building an AS9100, uh, business plan and quality system for a small, uh, machine or a small service bureau, right? And so, you know, instrumental in that, um, there's a, I've also been on the, Fortunately or unfortunately, the one to dig through all the regulations, you know, and, and over the past couple of years have built a pretty good, robust tool uh, aimed at looking at facility safety with respect to added manufacturing. And so we've got you know, 150 question checklist and a rating system that you know, we can pretty much drop into any facility around the country, mostly U.S. based um, rules at this point. And do an evaluation and say, hey, here are the things that are imminently um, scareworthy. Here are the things that you should probably fix in the future. And, and here are the things that, you know, if it was my facility, I would take care of. You know, you can ignore them if you'd like, but, you know, 
it's not the right thing to do. Um, you know, so I do that sort of that end of things um, on the AM Now program, for example. I'm the engineering leader for uh, binder jetting of 4130 steel. So that's literally bringing a new alloy through binder jetting into, you know, the lexicon of AM uh, in support of some army needs. And I also support a series of uh, plastic parts uh, that we're doing also for the AM Now program in support of army. Uh, and so, you know, engineering, writing statements of work, um, doing technical drawings, specification analysis, uh, supplier selection, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so uh, you know, it's it, every day is different. <laughs> and so thinking about kind of bringing it back a little bit to the material science side, kind of mm-hmm. what is it about kind of additive that makes the material so- science side of things interesting for you? The really, it's a combination of getting materials, process, and shape at the same time, right? So you know, pressing and sintering is sort of that way. You know, you can say some of the shape forming processes too, but you know, typically if you're going to forge something or extrude something, the material is already there, right? You've got a standard chemistry already established, uh, whereas an additive, you know, your input material changes or can change through the process. And so, um, you know, it's shape formation plus process equals materials and how we can vary that path and make different materials using the same input chemistry and process is really kind of where, where my head is, is, is what's interesting. Whether it's a polymer process, you know, or a metals process, uh, or ceramic process or composites process, doesn't really matter. I, you know, it's the it's sort of the path dependence and the, the combination of processing plus shape making that, that's interesting. So when you were kind of describing what you do on a day-to-day basis, a little bit of the, the dregs, um, but kind of the, <laughs> these, the, these important things that often are, are overlooked, like facility safety, the quality side, certainly in the, the system and the documentation of, of all additive adjacent steps in the process like that's often oh, from, from what absolutely. slows this adoption this slows it makes people pause make people kind of dig into it a little bit more but mm-hmm. kind of what are you seeing kind of on a uh, over the last kind of few years in terms of of that piece of the overall industry are people kind of becoming more aware of it are, are they asking tougher questions when it comes to like hey like it are they assuming that, hey, it's not just I buy this machine and kind of put it in. It's like when like the actual workflow of any given part, right? It could be, yeah. hey, it spends eight hours in the machine, but like the actual touch time of developing the, the design, developing or doing the post-processing machining, mm-hmm. like that could be 20, 30 hours and way more than right. it spends in the, in, the, in the machine. So uh, what do you, I guess, probably general question, kind of what do you what are you seeing in terms of, of things happening in the industry kind of where from, from your vantage point, from a just overall adoption into, into production these days? Yeah. I mean, I think every, everybody's got to run their own race. And um, so it's, it's hard to answer in, in, in one set of words or one, one mm-hmm. capability. Um, I think you're, you're right in supposing that there's a little bit more focus on quality. I mean, I think, 
the the last couple of shows I've been at, see a lot fewer people who are willing to just go and buy a machine and try it. Um, you know, oftentimes they've done that with a desktop printer or they've done that with some low cost device. They started to understand what they want or what they need for a real product. And they think about it more as a system problem than I just go buy an additive machine and everything's done. Um, you know, I'm working right now with a company that's building a new facility. And, you know, they, they started their additive journey using a polymer machine, quickly got interested in metals, happened to be located in a business park where there's a wire EDM across the parking lot. You know, and so they didn't have quite as many struggles as as many do with that the downstream processing side. Um, you know, but they're now building their own facility, and so I've spent a few hours with them, in terms of answering questions and generally, you know, think about what's people flow like, what's the material flow like, what areas do you want your customers in, what areas are you going to consider your secret sauce. You know, what, where, where does the UPS guy or girl deliver packages versus where does your most important raw material come into the building? So, so thinking strategically about how to lay all of that stuff out can go, uh, you know, a long way towards business success, you know, elimination of foreign objects in your process, cleanliness, safety, and, and really good, you know, quality results. Right, but it all all results from some some early planning. Yeah, and it's always a balance too, but between those types of customers that have the blank space, the white space to to start something mm-hmm. essentially from scratch, versus someone that's trying to shoehorn in is like, hey, we've got this million dollar metal machine, we got to put in here. We've got space for the machine, but there's no space for post processing, or you have to take that's it right. ac- across the parking lot. <laughs> there's it's this yeah. this real big balance that it's. If you just talk to the OEMs, like they want to get the machine in there, so it'll fit, but you can't do anything. It'll else. fit, but, <laughs> but you can't. But what can you do with it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the other challenge of a machine is that when that machine is down, mm-hmm. and you know, with the current labor shortages, uh, that's a real possibility. I mean, we've been hearing from customers that several of the machine OEMs are having big problems supporting their customers with enough service techs, and so you might wait six weeks for service. So if you have one machine, is that really enough to rely on for your production? Or should you have two? I have a friend in the casting industry whose famous quote is one equals none. Because he's gotten just screwed too many times with a piece of equipment that went down and then you missed a critical customer delivery. So so he always buys two of anything he can afford. Good thought. If you have the money, yeah. <laughs> if you have the money, right? Or yeah. or or you you strategically buy two small two things that are maybe smaller than your needs, and you balance their capacity, you balance their use. That way, you always have one that can work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the other sort of interesting side that we often get into is you know helping people decide how to change their business, whether that's you know a third generation owner that that wants to retire but doesn't have the next generation of their family to to pick up the business or you know they're ready for a change and they want to get acquired and so they're not doing all the day-to-day management and so you know helping people find find what their value is what what the actual you know destination that they really want is and um, then a good partner to get there with has been also pretty 
pretty fun sort of subset of diversions lately, especially last year with so, so much M and a last year. It was, it was crazy. And so just a couple kind of final questions. So first one is, um, kind of, as you look towards the, the rest of the year, we're in you know, February going into March here, like, what are you excited about, um, related to the industry related to kind of the work you're doing or related to the Cleveland Indians, maybe upcoming or no, it's not the, the guardians up to up, the guardians now <laughs> upcoming <laughs> season. Maybe we'll see if they play. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta give me some guardian swag now that uh, chief Wahoo is no longer allowed to right. be displayed. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know that I have any predictions on the MLB season or when it's going to start. Um, hope, hopefully someone will speak sense into owners and players union and, and we'll actually have a season this year. Uh, um, I think on, for the industry, one of the things I'm excited about is Form Next North America. Right, I think the that show could really change kind of the makeup of how we think about trade shows versus technical conferences in North America. You know, it's IMTS is sort of too big. And as a small additive company, you're going to get lost. Uh, but I think something like form next that, that grows organically over, you know, over the course of the next few editions could make a really, really nice addition to the North American, you know, trade show arena. So that's something I'm really interested to seeing how it plays out. You know, also I think that, you know, that may cause others to reevaluate whether their shows have value. Uh, So we'll we'll see. Um, You know, I think that one of the things I'm hopeful for is that there's a reduction in total number of trade shows and technical conferences, because if I went to everyone (laughs) that's additive, I would never be home. Right. You get sick of seeing the same people there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I think that there's on the machine side and on the downstream processing side uh, and, and in software, I think there's real value coming in areas outside of laser powder bed fusion. Right? And I think finally for DED solutions, for finally for DED solutions that they're we're on the cusp of having good software solutions to build parts. So it's not, you know, a year of programming to make a part. It's, you know, it's, it's okay. Get, get geometry, you know, slice the build, go uh, like it is in laser powder bed fusion or in material extrusion. Um, you know, I think also in cold spray, we're starting to see, you know, that become a bit more of a mature subset of the industry along with DED. And so, you know, those sort of plug and play ready solutions that make it easier for someone to buy and utilize uh, is really going to go a long way for the applications that are not laser powder bit fusion or not material extrusion. Um, And the other thing I'm really interested in is just the, the bevy of temperature resistant, tough, uh, strong materials from both that photopolymerization kind of processes, as well as you know pellet extrusion, to to take over incumbent aluminum solutions, take over some incumbent you know things in in more high volume industries, which I think is we're on the cusp there too. 
Sure. Uh, from a zeros perspective. Again, I brought it back to materials. Strange. <laughs> I like it. Keep it consistent. Um, so last last question before I let you go for, for the weekend. Um, if you could give kind of one piece of advice to, to someone just kind of evaluating or starting out their career, maybe thinking about additive, like, hey, is this going to be something that I should invest my time in, in learning more about or kind of getting a job in? Kind of, what would that be? Oh boy. Career advice. That's something I don't like to give. Um, I'll say that maybe I can't give direct career advice, but what I, what I like, what I look for in people like when I've been a hiring manager is someone who has a strong expertise in one thing, right. But broad awareness in a variety of others. So sort of the T people or tree people, if you want to, you know, somebody deep roots, and but broad interests, um, you tend to bring the best to the team. And so I'll say that that developing not only you know your core that you're really good at, but also being a, a human, a citizen, right, and having broader interests really brings something to whatever team you're you're with. Um, the other thing I'll have to say is that don't is to interview the company where you're where you're thinking about uh, going and find as much information as you can because, you know, culture uh, makes as much of an impact as anything else when you're in the work world. And so finding a culture that works for you and uh, where you would like to work goes a long way uh, when you're early in your career towards happiness and success. Awesome. That's great advice. And I want to thank you for joining the show today and uh, look forward to seeing you at uh one of these upcoming conferences, one of these too many upcoming conferences, right? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. This was fun. All right. Talk soon.